Hello and welcome to the About to Interview podcast. I'm your host, that guy named John. This is a supplemental version of the About to Interview podcast, which drops every Wednesday and covers movies, TV shows, film festivals, and more. You can follow the podcast on all forms of social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at About to Review. And make sure to subscribe on iTunes slash Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Blueberry, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. This show focuses solely on the conversations that I have with authors, directors, actors, and creators, and is available on YouTube as well as subscribing to the podcast. Make sure to click the subscribe button below, give a thumbs up, and check out the full show notes with links to the guests at abouttoreview.com. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a Joining me on this episode of the About to Interview podcast is returning guest, Pornsack Pichet Schott, uh, who I originally met at Emerald City Comic Con this past year, the creator of Infidel, the comic series. Welcome back, Pornsack. Thank you. Thank you. It's good to be back. And joining us for the first time is a fellow podcaster and also the person who you know, kind of provided the other critical component of a comic book, which is the visual. So welcome to the show, Aaron Campbell. Hello. <laughs> so, and, and, and just for a brief, brief correction, me and Aaron are actually co-creators on the book. I was technically I, I did notice that, that in issue five, <laughs> in issue yeah, five, yeah. you finally, or not finally, but yeah, it does say co-creators because it was something that you're a little bit, you know, a stickler about in the notes of issue number one. You were like, the way it breaks down, we have to say creator here, artist here, but yes, co-creators. Yeah. I, I've gone through some things because, like, in a way, like you know, everyone who works in the book is a creator in the book. It's just the book doesn't exist without everyone involved. So, so technically, me, Aaron, Jeff, and Jose are co creators on the book. And um, so, when I started the book, it didn't feel right. Just say, like you know, it didn't feel right. Like single one out, so long. And then at one point there was like, you know, the word storyteller just by me and Aaron. But then I didn't want to take any credit for the art because I definitely didn't help at all in that department. Right. So then, so then it became this weird thing of like, how do you sort of break this down? And so and yeah, and by, by issue five, I was just like, eh, Aaron has certainly done all the done all the work as a co-creator. I'll, I'm just going to formally call us co-creators. Even though technically so is Jose and Jeff, so I don't know. It's it, 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 these more these lines, these moral lines just sort of shift around. But yeah, the way I look at it, we're all we're co-creators Con- contractually. Me and Jeff yeah. have the biggest say in what happens. Right. That yeah. is probably in a, in a court of law. That is how that works. Out. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and in the court of podcasting, everybody is equal. You guys are all amazing creators of this comic book, Infidel. Uh, and when when you and I first met Pornsack at Emerald City Comic Con, your pitch for this book was perfect, and it was something that I will always remember. Like I have talked about it with other people when just talking about pitches, 
you said, so this comic book is about a group of people living in an apartment building haunted by ghosts that feed off of xenophobia. Done. Like, simple, succinct, in like yeah. 15 <laughs> seconds, you just crushed it. And so I have to ask, how long did it take you to develop that? And when you first approached Aaron and Jose and everybody else that you were working with, was it that precise or was it how much time did it take you to kind of whittle it down to that perfect essence of the book? I, I, I mean, I think a lot of it is you're constantly, when you're thinking conceptually about a book, you're constantly, you, you have a general idea and you're constantly trying to really validate it. I am that guy. Um, if you, there is not a text I send, an email I send, I send, that I don't be like, ooh, I could have done that unless we like, you know, I'm like, ah, oh, that text is like three words off. I should have, like, you know, I should have spent the extra 30 seconds thinking about it and taken three words off. Um, so I knew, I, I knew, you know, and, and I'm quite honestly, like, the book can be broken down to just, like, two words. It's about racist jokes, you know, and then, but then that doesn't give you, like, the right tone and, and all that kind of stuff. So then it's just like, that accordion of trying to find sort of the right tone. And so, and, and, and so, right, and so then, and, so once you know kind of what the area of the story is, then it's about how much do you want to tell, in, you know, in that bit, and, and how much is enough to tell. So it definitely, it was always pretty succinct, I think, um, but it definitely got shorter and shorter and shorter. And, and, and this is the thing about fiction too, and it's what I, it's what I used to do with Vertigo, and it's what I still do now. Is when I have a book, you talk about it at a party, and if you're at a cocktail party where people are speaking loudly, you don't have a lot of time to impress them. So if, you know, if you're talking and you see yourself leaving the crowd, then you know it's going too long. And so that's a, that, that to me, the best way to test the pitch is to test it out at a party. Is that if you can talk about it at a party, at a time where, you know, someone's got a drink and someone's distracted by this thing and you can catch their attention and you can do it in and out very quickly, then you have a decent pitch. And if you can't do that, then your pitch needs a little, little bit of work. And, and we went to the Infidel, you know, had a, uh, had a longer version of it, but yeah, when I talk about it at parties, it's like, oh, wow, it's taken me a while. All right, what can I, how can I whittle it down? So that, you know, as soon as I see it, people read it in, as opposed to taking two seconds, you know, what's going on? And, and, and. Gotcha. Yeah. I mean, that definitely, I mean, it has that old kind of that, that elevator pitch type of mentality where it's like, yeah. you have X amount of time where you happen to run into the CEO of a company. What yeah. is your thing? <laughs> yeah. People don't want to listen to me for that long. So like, you know, I just got to get out about this. Otherwise, they move on to the person in the room. So, yeah, so, so. It, it's, a, it's an acquired scale. Gotcha. And Aaron, when you first heard the pitch, in whatever version it was, what was that, to use a term that you and I are familiar with, what was that adventure hook? What was that thing that kind of immediately uh, pulled you in? Um, hmm. The, it, it, was a, it was kind of a lot of things. It was a, the fact that I was being asked by a dear old friend and former uh, professor uh, where I went to undergrad, Jose. Uh, he was a, I mean, I never had him as a teacher, but I've known him since I was undergrad. He started teaching uh, when I was, I think, a sophomore in college, like 1997 or 8, I believe. And so... Uh, I've been wanting to work with Jose for quite a long time because I've wanted Jose to color my work for a very long time. And then uh, it was uh, it was really more Jose's pitch based mm. on Pornstack's pitch that intrigued me. 
which was that it was a horror story. It was it was going to be a short uh, horror story series uh, that dealt with themes of racism and xenophobia. And I was like, that sounds awesome. <laughs> like, that sounds like exactly the kind of story we need right now. And I want to do horror so badly. I've been wanting to do horror for so long. Uh, it was perfect. I mean, every aspect was perfect. Nice. And then definitely, I mean, you know, leading right to that and the work that you did with Jose to draw and color the book. The visuals in this book, especially when it comes to the kind of, you know, like Porntech said, uh, racist ghosts. We should make that a hashtag. Hashtag racist <laughs> ghosts. I wonder how quickly that would go viral. <laughs> <laughs> we should have thought of that at the beginning. Yeah, really. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but speaking speaking of the the racist ghosts, they are uniquely terrifying. The the visuals in this are just so just tangible, and it reminded me a lot of you know uh, Chris Wallace's work on The Fly and Bob Botton's work on The Thing. Yeah, you know these kind of physical manifestations, but the way that they are stretched and pulled. So, kind of, what were your inspirations with that visual medium or with those visuals and how much work did did you really kind of go into shaping physically shaping those creatures uh so it kind of began as just a conversation uh what we wanted the ghosts to look like how we wanted them to how we imagined them but i know that uh a lot of porn sex influences are in manga and and anime uh horror and and also you know Asian Asian horror films, so it was already it was already a concern from the beginning that there is a strong weird visual component to the horrors in the book, things that are other and unexplainable. So I started thinking about that idea, and I don't know. I just came up with this idea that the ghosts would somehow be reflective visually of exactly how they died uh, or mm. exactly how they appeared in the moments of their death. And then we started layering on other ideas on top of that, which would reflect the lingering aspects of their character that defines their racism, their insecurities, uh, their character in life. So it was, it was a bit of a combination. You, know, you have our main ghost that shows up right off the bat in issue one. Mm -hmm. uh, he's completely twisted, just like there's a female ghost that you always see who's very twisted. Uh, there's a reason for that. You've read issue five, so perhaps you know the reason for that. At this mm -hmm. point. Uh, and then uh, as we kind of pan outward, the other ghosts um, also are kind of reflective Especially the ghost, uh, there's a second ghost that appears in issue one where Aisha walks into uh, Leslie's uh, office and she sees this hideous man standing there and then he melts. So that's also, there's also a, a, a clear reason why he does that based on how he died. So, and then there, like I said, again, there's uh, other aspects like things about their character that I try to infuse into them visually. Uh, to to tell their story without words. Nice, and then I mean, especially now that you 
now that you mention it, uh, with Pornsack, I mean, I wonder if, because now that I have that in my head, there are definitely some Akira vibes with with some of the creatures and just the way that they're kind of, I guess, put together. I'm using air quotes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the way they bubble and boil, you know. <laughs> exactly. It's funny. Um, there's a bunch of things that went into it, and I don't. I actually don't know sort of what the causation, the the, the chain of causation was. Um, but you can make the argument that because I'm Asian, I am into a lot of manga and anime and, and Asian horror, and I'm drawn to that stuff. Um, you can make the argument that I'm not drawn to that stuff, but having but my proximity to the living in those countries have made me you know, aware of that stuff, so that when I was canvassing around and looking for, like, what are some effective horror comics, you know, which are the ones that work kind of thing. And I, and I actually don't know sort of, you know, which came first to chicken or the egg. A lot mm-hmm. of it for me, though, is that when I was looking at horror, I was looking at what was the most effective horror. And the most effective horror that I had seen, and, I, and, you know, and literally I had it all on my shelf as I was writing the book, most of it came through Junji Ito. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who yo, and uh, and uh, Tome, and, and you know there was other people as well, and, and, and definitely the Tomo stuff in in in, uh, in Akira was part of it. And one of the things I kind of learned, and, and also looking at stuff like the Lano John Lucas Hellblazer, Alan Morgan's that's one thing. One of the things that I it's, it's when you're writing anything, any creative process, there's a learning curve that happens as you're doing. So much of that is self-exploration. Uh, most of the tools that we're working with are well. And one of the things I've kind of realized was that, oh, wow, body horror works better in comics than it does in adaptation. And, 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 and so when you look at stuff like The Fly and, and The Thing, those are very effective body, you know, body horror. Um, there's not many of them in film. And part of the reason for that is that it's very, very, very tricky to pull off. Rodenberg pulls it off, Carpenter pulls it off in that with that movie and probably more for the special effects artist whose name I forget but Aaron I know for you know for which one the the for, for the thing the thing was uh, Bob Botton was oh, the actual John- creature designer and then John Carpenter was the director yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Hey, who was the creature designer Bob Botton I believe yeah Bob Botton yeah yeah yeah, yeah. and he was great about that and he was and you know he was so good about the the, the, the thing there kind of thing yeah. So, you know, I don't think I realized it before. All I realized, and this is something Jose, um, in, in his wisdom, sort of tuned in on, was able to articulate, and then I was able to run with, is that so much of the horror that I was responding to, the horror that I, that I, that scared from the body horror, was about, was the concept of the body bending but not breaking. Hmm. And so, the, the moment where the body breaks the point of birth and that and blood, a certain amount of unease is lost. And I think part of what the body hearts and the body heart that we do, it, there is this Pavlovian kind of reaction to a body twisted that in a weird way we feel more uh, we feel more relief if it actually broke and blood spurted out of it. It's the fact yeah. that it doesn't deprive our rules of our world and reality that that adds to that unease, and that was something I kind of realized as I was writing. And like, you know, like I said, like as you're writing anything, you're learning more about the tools that you're writing with as you're writing. And so as as I understood that, 
and you know, we ended up playing more and more and, and, and try to find different ways to vary vary things off. But uh, but yeah, so a lot of it started. A lot of it started with I mean, Asian horror was definitely sort of you know, be it a Tomo, be it uh, Ito, um, or, or and, and also being you know, the, a lot of the Japanese horror movies like Juan uh, and, and the Ring and and Dark Water. They all sort of led us down that path. But then once Aaron and the Pelicans were kind of you know, you know yes. yeah i mean so definitely i mean that is a very good point and a very good visualization of we have all you know watched those things where yeah if you see something stretching and you're you're wanting almost that release of the break because once it breaks and you're like oh okay it is over (laughs) as opposed to that like that uncomfortable stretching and pulling of something even when like a recent example, there's a, a film I watched, uh, a awesome, awesome French film that was at the Seattle International Film Festival called Revenge. And oh. a character, and I, I, you know, it's one of those things where it always happens, it always happens in horror, but, you know, steps on some glass. And so they have like this like brutal visualization of the person taking the glass out of their foot. And as you're watching them do it, you're just so uncomfortable. But as soon as they get it out, then you're like, ah, whew. You know, you yeah. can finally, like, yeah. breathe. And so, that yeah. art style, so you that... Can, well, you can... What works so great about things like that, or when you see somebody's fingernail break off, is that everybody can relate to that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, we've all experienced it on in one way or another. So, we can, re- we can relate. There, I think when you go in, go too far overboard, you enter a place where it's... The metaphor is no longer relatable. Yeah, so. right. I also wonder though, and this question for the call: Do you guys feel that stuff works in comics? Like, if you saw a close-up of like glass being pulled out of a foot, do you have that same? Like, is that something that only works in live action? I'm trying to think if I've seen it in comics and and, and if, there, if, if I've had a response to it. I think it is different because, like, with when I think of you know a Flash, you know, comic where. You know, he is fighting Mirror Master or something like that, and Flash is a shatter a bunch of things to try and get to him. If you see Flash picking glass out of his suit or out of his shoulder, it does not have that same visceral reaction. It still is like, oh, I bet that sucks. But there's something yeah. about that live action, <laughs> you know, yeah. watching somebody do a thing that you yourself could be doing. Yeah, you relate to the part. Yeah. Yeah, because I. Yeah, I can't. Think, I can't think of, of uh, a good example of of feeling the you know like that kind of hair stand on the back mm-hmm. or, like stand on in whenever you and getting that that kind of shiver that runs through you yeah. when you see something that you know really looks painful and you can imagine feeling the pain mm-hmm. that's a really difficult thing to do in still imagery yeah yeah of any kind i think i think so too because it's funny as johnson as you were describing it i was kind of thinking like huh if i had like aaron you know in that sort of photorealistic expression style that aaron does do the equivalent of that i don't know if i get the same if i get the response i would i would hope for you know what i mean mm-hmm. and it's it's part of and part of working on infidel is trying to figure out what emotional reactions with visceral reactions work in live action 
that don't work on comics and, and, and all that kind of stuff. And it, it's part of that game. So, so yeah, yeah. Sorry, it was a little bit of a tangent issue. <laughs> no, but I mean, it makes sense. And there are definitely parts of of these five issues where, you know, the difference in perspective, you know, where you will yeah. see a character kind of zoomed in on one of these creatures and then their reaction, you know, to it, like as I am reading it, uh, spoiler alert for those people who have not read it yet, but you definitely should pick it up. Uh, do not read this at night. Um, so here I am, here I am last night before this call, just kind of like going through the four issues that I already had, just kind of like make some notes and everything. And I was like, why am I doing this at night, reading this by myself in the dark? This is not a smart idea. So it might not have given me like that hair on, you know, hair raising type thing, but it was still like the, not just the visuals, but the storytelling was so compelling that as I'm sitting there reading this comic book in the dark, I'm like, no, this is dumb. This is not a smart idea. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. It is a bigger comic comic, which I had. I had it with Jeff Lemire when we started this about what is a scary comic and you know how do, do comics sort of scare you and and you know do they count as scares and, and what what is that sort of feeling um like you know when i see a good scare in a comic i laugh in, in a good way like mm-hmm. not not derisively but just because i'm enjoying it so much you know, yeah it because it, it kind of has one of those gotcha moments yeah yeah it yeah. You, it cuts into you in a certain way and for me it gives me pleasure um other people, I'm sure they'll be grossed out, but me, like, it literally tickles me, um, and and it's is why I it's why I enjoy it, um, and, and yeah, and I, sorry, right, I lost my train of thought, but I I I, I, I yeah, I'm fascinated by I, I'm very grateful anytime someone says don't read it at night because yeah. it's tough to pull off scares on comics, it really really is. It's so it's so tough that people can't agree what a scare in a comic is. So I'm always really grateful when people are like, "Yeah, I shouldn't have read this." Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and the, the highest compliment that I got was from a friend of mine who, uh, after reading issue one, had a nightmare about oh, that's the cool. main ghost. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that definitely. Yeah, I mean, exactly. as that has to be that feeling of like, all right, I won. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I still remember, like you know. Jamie Delano and John Ridgway on Hellblazer, where Nergal is sitting on his bed and that, that lesion tongue is like coming at, you know, at Constantine, right about to jam it into his, into his, down his throat. Or where uh, John, Alan Moore and Steve Brissett uh, are doing the Monkey King in Swamp Thing and the Monkey King is holding the little kid's hand as they're like walking off into a dark corridor. And those are these haunting images that sort of stick with me. And, and it's definitely the goal so that, you know, because I read those like, and years ago at this point, you know, the goal is that people remember Aaron's imagery as vividly as I remember those. Yeah, well, and that brings up, that kind of leads into to a two-part question, you know, that I have for, for both of you. One, what was the monster under the bed when you were a child, but also, now, in 2018, what would you say that monster under the bed is for you right now? So, how about wow. Aaron, uh, we start with you. <laughs> God. No pressure. Um, the monster under the bed was definitely uh, well. It wasn't so much a. a I didn't have like a, a a clear image of what it was. It was the fear of your arm or your leg or a limb hanging off the edge of the bed. 
Okay. And then something grabbing you <laughs> and pulling you down. Like, you know, as long as you were within the peri- perimeter <laughs> of the edge of the bed completely and under the cover, you're safe. Very important to be oh, under God, the cover. I remember, I, I remember actually there was one thing that terrified me when I was a kid. I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was um, the 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 woman from the Goonies and also Throw Mama from the Train was in it, and it was a horror film. And I remember somebody like in it, in it, someone threw a basketball so hard at her head that her head exploded. Whoa! Like she was standing against a wall. <laughs> they threw a basketball, and her oh. head just goes bloom. Wow. There was a. There was a scene in there where I think her head crawled up under the covers of the blanket and into the bed where one of the main characters was sleeping or was oh. in. Oh. And, and and you see the lump move mm-hmm. through under the sheets. Oh. And then she lifts it up and there's the head. And yeah, <laughs> I cannot remember what that movie was, but it... it which she was definitely in it, so it should be fairly easy to find on IMDb or whatever. But yeah, that was definitely that. That completely just shattered my illusion that the bed was a safe place. <laughs> so there was that, and now the monster under the bed is, jeez, uh, um, do I have to even say it? <laughs> you can say whatever you want. <laughs> I mean, the monster of under the bed is 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 this is this fascist wave that's taking over and and subverting all decency, like all like any any hopes and dreams that like all of the hopes and dreams of a pleasant, nice society that we've been working towards are being utterly shattered and destroyed. I mean, the monster is real now, utterly real. And you know how I like one of one of my favorite ways to uh, uh, kind of forget and, 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 and go off into a, a, a place that feels more comfortable is by listening to true crime mm. podcasts mm. And, and shows. I mean, like, listen, like, I, I listen to wow. my favorite murder, Sword and Scale, uh, uh, Sworn, Criminal, all of these and there's something comforting about about these stories. I mean, granted, the ones that have ever been solved are horrifying, but but there's a there's an arc that is comforting when you hear the horrific crime. You can be be fascinated by this single individual who is broken, and uh, uh, be fascinated by their lack of humanity, but then be comforted by the story of justice served and mm. justice found. Uh, there's something about it that like, I can't get enough of it right now for some reason. Mm. And that's definitely my interest in that has seen an extreme uptick in the past two years. Okay. Would you, Aaron, say that um, you, for those reasons, you are less interested in true crime cases where the cases are not solved and there's no closure? Well, no, I think that there is... There's something that's where the true fear is, mm-hmm. right? Um, is in the unsolved, and I'm very interested in that that idea hmm. uh, because of the mystery aspect of it, right. and especially nowadays with 
like I'm really fascinated by this whole um, change that's happening with uh, ancestry sites being right. used to link ancestral DNA to criminals, and that's how they were able to find the Golden State Killer. Um, so all of that is, I mean, I find all of that, but, but the thing is, is like this is the classic story of good versus evil. There is the clear good, there is the clear bad, and and it the line is demarcated very, very well, and that's comforting to know that there is the good still and the bad it, uh, is definable, whereas now it's like suddenly... I mean, some I was online some yesterday seeing somebody going off about how uh, fascism and Hitler was left wing, and I'm like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> I was like, "What world do we live in right now?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's that's the true terror that that what we have considered to be uh, settled law. For so long, you know, like these these issues have been settled since World War II. Suddenly, are no longer settled, and people are trying to completely pervert uh, all the information that we have uh, gathered as humans for a thousand years. So that's that's what terrifies me the most. Okay, now th- those are both very valid and very uh, visceral. <laughs> Uh, kind of Im- images, uh, we could say. So, so Pornsack, what about you? What was the monster under your bed as a child and now? I mean, the, the thing about me with the monster under my bed is, like, the monster wasn't just under my bed. The monster was everywhere. Like, I just scared of everything. I did not watch horror movies for exactly that reason. And even now, when I look back, and Lord knows I'm giving, like, a psychoanalyst fodder, you know, the weird thing that would just, the, the random things that would scare me, uh, you know, places that were too empty. With, airport, airports at night, I still find, you know, airports at night on a, on a layover where no one's around, big, wide open, they scare me, scare me a lot when I was a kid. Um, something I still haven't, like, uh, when I was a kid, I still haven't quite figured out Unglamorized nudity, like scared me as a child. But like, I, I don't understand why. Um, you know, uh, a lot, like everything. Like I, I did not watch horror movies. Everything scared me. Um, and so as a result, I came to horror movies and the horror genre more as an adult, and it became a way of looking at, at psychology. Uh, but everything, you know, basically everything, sort of scared me as a kid. Uh, so I don't, I don't know if I can localize it to, like, any one image. Just because, like, at the sight, the slightest, like, suggestion, I would just run in the opposite direction. Like, it was just like, no. And, um, as an adult, I, uh, before I get to my, my two cents on where I, where I definitely agree with Aaron, that the, the recurring image that's been happening in my dreams, and I find it even interesting that I'm even referring to my dreams, because I generally don't remember my dreams. And what the thing that I've been realizing slowly is part of this fear that I have, I don't know where it stems from, is this ongoing sensation that I'm putting the brakes on my car and it's slowing and not stopping. And I don't know where that mm. comes from. I'm sure if I Googled it, it means some, somewhere. But the, the putting the brakes on my car, but it's slowing and not stopping, and I just keep drifting in the direction where I'm going, whether it's into a tree, whether it's into a, a post, whether it's into oncoming traffic, that is a recurring fear that I've been, that, that 
or, or haunting image that I've had lately. Huh. Um, on to the more depressing uh, answer, which is, you know, picking back in what uh, Aaron said, it, it was funny, I think it was just yesterday, it's recently yesterday, or this past week, I, I realized, like, you know, what Infidel is about for me is here that, you know, that a multicultural society is, is aberrant, aberrant, that 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 is not the way of the universe. That is not the way of the world. And and it's me, you know, and, and it was me using the book to heighten my my fear at its utmost so I could kind of fix it. And it was me watching the rest of the world say, Maybe your greatest fear is in fact the world kind of, kind of thing. And and I do feel like, you know, and and I, and I do and, and yeah, not 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 to drown the, this this podcast with too much existential dread and cynicism. But I, I do feel like, you know, where my, where my anxieties and where my fears and where my, um, and where my, uh, uh, uncom- discomfort comes from this idea of xenophobia and, and, and racism and all that is that when I look at the problem, I don't think it's a problem of them versus us. I think it's, I worry it's a problem of us versus us. You know, I think it's an internal problem as opposed to an external problem. And to me, that's what, that, that's what worries me. But I also feel like that's what um, separates me from, I think, a lot of people who have similar fears is that I, I worry that, you know, that fascists aren't as unusual as we want them to be and that they're a lot more similar to us than we, than, than we would like. Yeah, and that, that is something that also, you know, plays out through through the series, you know, in these five issues, you have this group of friends, these group of residents, you know, who live in the same building throughout the book, more things start coming to light, you know, both kind of visually and metaphysically, but some of those behaviors, you know, when a character starts saying that, you know, and I don't want to give anything away, but you know, when they start saying like, Oh, well, I also believe what this person says. And that shocks everybody. And that really takes that, that character back. And they're like, Whoa, how could you believe that? And they're like, well, because of this and this. So it really, you know, that dichotomy of, yeah, that us versus them, but also us versus us, this group of friends who had been knowing each other and living together for a while. All it takes is one incident or, you know, one or two incidents for them to then realize they have some fundamental differences that they have just never talked about. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely one of the goals of the book is to portray as much of a range of that as we can on a spectrum uh, without necessarily judging where you land, though I might personally judge where people land in that spectrum. I, the book tries not to, only in the sense because, um, just because it is an open question, it is, a, it, it, it is a topic up for debate. And one of the things that, you know, working the book is that, like, I may have my feelings of, like, this person's the this because this, A is A is B because C, but, um, but, but, you know, that's my own very personal calculus. And so if we're using a more objective calculus, it, it was the effort to say, okay, I think the book isn't going to judge who they are because the book does, the book is trying to portray the phenomenon as objectively, as, as realistically as possible without an, without an editorial slant, as much as it is. I mean, it's definitely a politically motivated book. But, uh, but, you know, but it's trying to portray that, that spectrum as, as, as accurately as well as we can without judging it only because, you know, I, I mean, you know, what's going to be 
hopefully what's going to be what is tolerable today will be racist tomorrow or is racist today will be abhorrent tomorrow and versa visa you know on all this stuff so like I, yeah so and, 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 and I go back and forth I go back and forth if you know in the course of the book should I have should there have been more of an editorial slant on some of the things that were happening but I but, I, but at the end of the day, I reassured myself with the lack of editorial slant is what added a sense of disease and unrest in the book. Hmm. And and the, the I, and I, one of the things I feel that people are responding to, and there's no way to really know, but one of the things I think people respond to is watching these actions happen without having a moral arbiter as a, as a touchstone to say this is right and this is wrong. I think that adds to the, the sense of discomfort and, uh, you know, uh, um, off-centeredness that that make that keeps it a tense and scary book. Nice. Uh, and then question for for Aaron. So a character in the book, Ethan, is this novelist, and as the madness is kind of happening around him and things are happening, he is like, "Oh, I can use this as you know fuel for my next book, and I can use this as references for my next book." When it came to some of the more occult things, and I know you are, you know, a big fan of Love Lovecraftian horror, but what were some other references for that? Uh, so a lot of those references, I used to be. I've never been uh, like my friend and partner co-host on my podcast. He is a like Alan Moore, a practicing. <laughs> Warlock wizard. I'm not exactly sure what Rob likes to, uh, how he likes to self-identify, but um, I used to be. So wait, he he multi-classes between warlock and wizard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, um, but uh, uh, I used to be very interested in that historically. um, I think there might have been like in college a short time where I played around with uh, Kabbalah, you know somewhat seriously but kind of the way i guess that madonna plays around with it somewhat seriously (laughs) but eventually i abandoned all of that and just kind of stayed interested uh as a subject of history because i think it is it's fascinating that period of medieval history where there were alchemists and there were so-called wizards who were trying to affect change on this pseudo-scientific level where they were trying to incorporate religious principles and scientific principles. So I went back to that um, source, which is there's uh, when when Ethan opens up that uh, journal that he finds in the mm-hmm. basement, and you see all of these glyphs and symbols and stuff. Yeah, you know, that's all stuff from from actual texts, uh, medieval texts like uh, the Key of Solomon the King. Uh, which is supposedly, the story goes, the system of magic handed down to King Solomon via Moses, which Moses received uh, at Mount Sinai when he confronted the burning bush. But of course, this is all apocrypha. It doesn't actually exist in the Bible. It's stories told afterwards. Uh, I think the Gnostics in Egypt were interested in these ideas, and they it may have come out of that. Uh, there's allusions to other things like uh, Cornelius Agrippa, who was a kind of renowned alchemist in the Middle Ages uh, in Europe. He wrote a book called The Three Books of Cult Philosophy. And uh, I also looked to alchemical imagery a lot um, for the character who sort of acts as our um, authority on that subject. Mm -hmm. Uh, He has all these tattoos 
All of those are alchemical uh, imagery and symbol uh, that all had to do with uh, very esoteric ideas about how um, the divine and the natural world intersect with each other. And uh, so that's sort of where I went for that imagery. Uh, none of that was made up on my part. So it's all it's all stuff that exists out there. People used to be fervent believers of. So and you know one thing that I talked to Pornsack about uh, when we were discussing this is how um, sort of in alchemical in mystical circles they 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 see the the demonic and the angelic as these notions of pure thought, pure emotion, mm-hmm. pure archetypal like the archetype of of ideas and so demonic uh, forces angelic forces they all represent these notions in their most pure state so when you see the image the the one thing that i did kind of make up i i kind of went back to medieval imagery in the way that like people like Hieronymus bosch would design and represent angels versus representing demons, and demons are always these kind of perverted amalgamations of animals, men, plant life, you know, dead things, living things, whatever. Uh, and then the angelic forms are always sort of this pure distillation. Uh, so there's this page in issue four where they're at his house, and the background is sort of this framing device for the three panels on the page. And that framing device, as Cornsack uh, wrote it in the script, was supposed to, in some way, kind of represent this kind of eternal struggle between light and dark, good and evil, demonic, angelic. So my idea for that was to show this sort of otherworldly, extra-dimensional, eternal battle being waged, and it's all through light and dark. So all of the demonic forces are just kind of like these shadow puppets that are made up of just all of these different parts mm-hmm. um, kind of representing the perversion of their pure form and then the angelic forms are these wheels and that kind of references the the, the great wheel within the will that, that appears in the bible I think it's uh, Isaiah who sees them and well, it was also one, uh, of the, like, one of the choirs of angels uh, there was yeah. Some some wheel imagery as well. Yeah, so I I, I imagine that is like uh, my idea is that that's pure geometry. It's like the pure. It's like the archetype. It's the pure original form uh, of unperverted idea, um, unperverted emotion. So it's positive energy versus negative energy. All that kind of stuff that I just threw in, um, and it's really just kind of it kind of exists just. To, I mean, it, it doesn't really play too much into the story, so so to speak, but uh, it does, uh, those basic core ideas are reflected in what Pornsack was coming up with in terms of uh, the emotions that fuel these creatures, the ghosts. Yeah, the well, I'm, and some of, those, some of those visual cues that you were talking about are definitely apparent, even though you know, I did not know all of the backstory until just now, like in some of the panels where we're kind of, you know, seeing through the eyes of those ghosts. And there are a lot of reds and blacks and darker colors. And then there are a couple scenes where we see that same kind of visual, 
but a much, much lighter, you know, haze around the subject. So, Pornsack, when you were writing this script, were those visual cues that you were already kind of writing in? Ooh, um, so there is a scene where uh, Medina and Aisha are in the hallway and you see like basically the ghost looking at them and there's a lot of red. You know, you see them kind of in the shadow because you're looking through those eyes. And then a scene in the hospital where you're seeing both of them, you know, in the same panel. But there's, yeah, like a white, almost like a white light around them from a top down perspective, just like more of a haze. Ah, okay, okay. So what's interesting for both of those, a lot of, and the reason why I ask for specifics is because I feel like so much of it is the person calling the give and take between writer and artist. You know, a lot of that is stuff that, I'm trying to think, I think in the first one, it, that was just a, and Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong, I, I, that was just a, um, in the script, it was just, you know, ghost POV, you know, not, not even ghost POV, it was third person POV. And it was meant to, uh, you know, it, it was meant to uh, simulate that third-person camera where you're not quite sure if it's the ghost, you're not quite sure it's the killer, or it's just an objective camera for kind of looking at kind of play with it. And, um, and, and I think Aaron took that one step further, and I think that was around the time where Aaron came up with the, the, the idea of the sort of ghost vision and ghost POV, and then, that, and then it ended up having a very specific effect. Um... I, that was for that first one, and I think for the second one, that that prayer sequence. I I want to say that the haze was. I remember there was a version without the haze, and then mm-hmm. I can't remember if we added the haze. If I added the haze in the script, or if it was a conversation with Aaron where the haze was added. And but for all of them, you know, is that the scene where Medina is at the hospital, um, sitting next to Aisha's bed? Yeah, yes. I think it's where she's pregnant, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Was that was that in the script or was that you, Aaron? No, I think that was in the script. We t- I remember you talking about that. You wanted you wanted it to be uh, the idea that you were going for was that the whole world is kind of falling away, and in this what? quiet moment, it is just there is only Medina, there is only Aisha. That's right. That's this connection between them. Too. Yeah, that's right. That's what it was. So yeah, so in that particular one, then it was more in the script. In the first one, I feel like the stuff that you're responding to is is, is more Aaron bringing it to the table. Very cool. Uh, and then kind of one of one of my last questions is of this kind of, you know, five issue series with a limited number of of characters, you know, who are really all together trying to some of them are trying to figure it out. Some of them are just around while it is happening and kind of responding. But who do you each what character do you each relate to the most and why? Aaron, you answer this first. I like, I like how we keep throwing to Aaron. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just put to Aaron, but it's a tough one. <laughs> um, I mean, in a sense, I probably relate to Aisha the most huh. um, because I can understand her social uh, uncertainty and her social unease dealing with confrontation and... Uh, uh, what's happening around her and kind of just wanting to retreat from that and not not upset the status quo. Um, and then also because uh, just in my social circle, you know, I uh, with my wife, with my niece and 
a bunch of other people, you know, I can see how, you know, you have people who come from incredibly traditional backgrounds. Uh, uh, even my mom, even me, um, people who come from incredibly traditional backgrounds who are trying to live their lives on their own terms and figure out their own path. And they just kind of want everybody else to just deal with it, you know, like not, not make such a big deal out of everything, you know, like, and so this is what Aisha is having to deal with as a Muslim American. She has to deal with all of this baggage that's coming, uh, that's being put on her from the outside. And, uh, she has no choice but to deal with it and still try to live her life. I mean, I come from a background of very fundamentalist Baptist, uh, mm. Southern, Southern general Baptist. And, now, granted, I didn't have to, you know, I was never pressured so, so much by my parents to follow that path because even they were always kind of conflicted, you know, throughout my childhood of, you know, where they really stood within that faith, you know, tradition. Uh, but my mom, for example, you know, she grew up, she was not allowed to listen to secular music. She was not allowed to dance. She was not allowed to go to Wait, she grew up in the Footloose Town? None of that. What's that? She grew up in the Footloose Town? <laughs> Basically, yeah. That is that Footloose Town is where I'm from. Uh, so, <laughs> and and there are there are correlations to that also with my wife uh, and her background. And so, for me, just in terms of a character who I think is most fleshed out, um, uh, or, or one of the characters is most fleshed out because you have her, Medina. Uh, Medina, Medina's confidence and uh, uh, force of will is not something I can necessarily relate to, but but Aisha's I can definitely relate to probably more than, than anything else. So that's my answer. Nice. <laughs> See, look, we gave it to you first, and you knocked it out of the park. So now oh. the pressure is on Porn Sack <laughs> to follow it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it was funny is the way I look at it, and, and however my brain works, I, uh, I I I relate to their flaws more than their strengths. Um, and so uh, Aisha and Medina are the two are the two voices that are sort of in my that are constant, that represent two voices that are in my life. And Aisha is the voice that, and I think Jose, the first person to say, is like you're a pleaser, just the way the same way Aisha is. You always want to please everybody. And, um, but, but Aisha very much represents the, the, the notion that if you give more, the world will give you, will give back, will give back more. And, and there's definitely a philosophy there that I subscribe to in the sense of give people the chance to screw up before assuming they're going to, to screw up, to screw up. And then, um, and, and, and so there's a little piece of her that, 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 there's a piece of her that resonates very much. On the other hand, though, I very much resonate with Medina, the question, and and Aisha wrestles with the question of, you know, when does that go too far? You know, at what point am I compromising myself when I do that? Um, and that's a question Aisha wrestles with. Medina wrestles with a different question, which is, am I too cynical? Do I, the amount of faith it takes to get through the day to have a healthy life, do I not possess it? Do I, you know, do I need to to be more than that? Do I need to take more of a leap? Do I need to have more of a sense of trust? But the world is on fire, so how can I do that? 
Um, those are the two voices that are very much in my head, and I relate to them a lot, especially when I'm writing them. Of, of, and, and I and I li- and I can flip back and forth between them very easily of being the person who, like, oh, I'm getting too, someone too much, you know, rope to hang both of us with, and then on the other hand, being like, why can't why can't I be more trusting that, that people are doing things for the reasons why they are doing things as opposed to the, the, these alternative things I'm trying to figure out. Uh, those are two voices I very much relate with. And then, you know, and, and certainly, like, I gave Ethan uh, some stuff. I, I, I put words in Ethan's mouth that I have sort of thought. It, it, it's interesting. I, I put experiences in Ethan's mouth that, I, that I've experienced, even though his interpretation of them are actually very different from mine. And um, because... Because it ultimately my perspective is the perspective of the book and all the characters in Toto, as opposed to any one of the characters. But uh, but yeah, but that um, and, and, and also you know just a little and I, I relate to a little piece of Reynolds as well. Um, hmm. it's also a little piece of as well. Fun fact about the book: in the script, Ethan doesn't look nearly as much as like me as he did when I got the art back. Okay, That's see that, that was something that that I was also kind of I was going to lead into that next, depending on who you said, because as I'm looking through, I was like, "Wait a minute!" Yeah, well, yeah, no, 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 no. I, I had that same discovery. I had that same discovery when you know, you know who I used for the model for Ethan? Who? Myself. <laughs> I changed my face, but it's, it's my basic facial structure. Really? It's weird. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like that. That is pretty awesome. Uh, and I like that all of us, all of us learned something from that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we're not so different. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so my uh, my last question. So one of the the themes and a quote, a direct quote that is repeated in, you know, starts in the first issue and again it comes up later on is obsessing over the shadows in a room full of light. And that concept, that idea, absolutely stuck with me. And so I kind of want to, you know, tie it into something else. But what are some obsessions that each of you have that people would not expect? That people would not expect. Yeah, okay. You know what's funny is, I don't know if my obsessions are very obvious, uh, are, are very obvious or not, actually. Um, I'm a, I, I'm a wonk. I, I don't, I don't think this is a surprise. I, but I am a wonk to the extent that surprises, where I surprise myself. Well, I will get excited over the most technical, the most, you know, especially when it comes to comics. Like, I cannot tell you how happy I am with our back cover. I love all the books, but, but like, the, I, I, the fact that we have a previously on page. Like, mm-hmm. I love that As we're going over the train, that I'm looking at hard stocks for the cover and whether or not we're going to have a spot varnish and how many signatures we're going to add. Like, I get so jazzed by that stuff. And, 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 and you know, and it's, it's one of the things that really just kind of comes down to is the thing that I feel like a constant surprise to me is that I... It... it it's surprising me that I, I'm surprised by this, but I really, really, really do love comics. And I love so much so that I will get into a thing of, ooh, this is an interesting structure of how, of how you put a comic, and I'm fascinated by it. I can think about it for an hour. Like, uh, you know, I was just looking at uh, Jody LaHoop's uh, The Weatherman, and 
if you look at the credits of the weatherman, and Joe's doing something really interesting with the way he does credits, where he does credits the way I feel like movies do credits, in the sense of, if you look at them, you almost get a recipe for how he made the book, and the recipe for the best of the book, and it's almost up to you to be like, all right, here's everything in the box. Like, now, now can you figure out how he made it? Everything in that box. So, like, you know, when I look at that, when he, and I look at his credits, and he's got a digital content manager, sales manager, he's crediting someone for production, and I'm like, ooh, how does that work? How does that happen? And I start going down this rabbit hole, and the next time I see Jody, I'm going to ask him all these questions about how did it help, did it make it look better, and all that kind of stuff. But it, I'm constantly surprised, and I, unfortunately, I don't think it's surprised anyone, but, like, I'm constantly surprised by how much I obsess of all the little minutiae it comes to sort of making comics. And more, and I, I obsess with minutia in all storytelling, but uh, but specifically in comics. I was just reading an issue of Optic Nerve this morning, and and I loved how they have cropped uh, dialogue rules to show that someone is not listening to something, or when 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 a scene change when when a scene changes, but they're in the same room, the color palette of the panels. Change. Like those are little things. I just I've got to remember that in the next. And I and I just get nice. Well, I mean, it is good that you know that that obsession is it just happens to be the medium in which you uh, are a prof- <laughs> are a professional in comics. Right, right. It works out well. It works out well, definitely. <laughs> nice. And then uh, Aaron. Uh, so mine's kind of similar. Like I, I also obsess over the tiny details in my own art. It's about the pursuit of a perfect mark. Mm. So. For me, working digitally is is a bit of a double-edged sword <laughs> because it allows me to get to a better mark, but it also allows me to keep making those marks over and over again, hitting Control Z. <laughs> so, <laughs> so <laughs> trying to get that perfect that that perfect line or that that perfect calligraphic swoosh or whatever, and uh, but then also I am terrible at obsessing over historic details or um, uh, anything that would could be considered anachronistic or out of place or incorrect uh, I I get so I can get so deep into the the weeds and the details that I forget that oftentimes a lot of these details uh, are completely instant and no one will ever notice for example, the very first project I worked on was a Sherlock Holmes book with Leia Moore and John Repion, and it was set in I think it was nineteen or eighteen ninety five, I believe. And there was a whole aspect of the book that took place at Scotland Yard, and so in the script, you know, they were talking about what was happening at Scotland Yard in this particular building, and it was all based on uh, the way Scotland Yard. Uh, looks currently, which is the there's this really beautiful building on the Thames that it's this red brick building. There's it has a courtyard in the middle, so there's two buildings on either side, and then there's this big gate with the royal crest um, of uh, Buckingham Palace or whatever it is, the the, the king and queen of England, and uh, so it, it's two buildings, and then they're connected by a breezeway on the back. And that building was built, like, and began construction in the 1880s, whatever. Um, Scotland Yard is now, the current Scotland Yard is obviously a much more modern building now. This one is just kind of, I I don't know what they use it for anymore. At any rate, so they were basing 
uh, all of this on that particular building. And as I was doing my research, trying to find uh, find out what the building looked like in the time period, I discovered that half of Scotland, half of that building had not been built yet. But yet the part of the story that they were writing was taking place in the part of the building that had not been built. And so I emailed them and they were like, oh, thank you, thank you. And then I don't, afterwards, you know, when I was all said and done, I was like, who gives a shit? Like, nobody is ever going to know. Like, why was I obsessing about that? Like, we went back and forth for days trying to figure out exactly what Scotland Yard looked like in that particular moment, and nobody would have cared. So I've had to make myself over the years stop researching so much because if I let myself go, I'll go, I'll go down these rabbit holes. Um, of research trying to get to the absolute truth of a thing when it really has nothing to do with the story. And it's like story is what matters. And like, for instance, I hate, hate, hate the movie Gladiator because of all of the anachronisms in that movie. The tigers, what are you talking about? That helmet he wears, what is, that's like from Dungeons and Dragons. What, what the hell? Like, well, and not to like mention the, like, the giant, uh, giant co2 tank that you see in the chariot when it flips over oh right 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 you know i mean that's an accident but right. you know <laughs> but <laughs> so that is that is my obsessing over the shadows in a room full of light nice i like it and then uh one thing that we have not talked about this whole time uh because we maybe kind of buried the lead uh a little bit so before even issue two hit the shelves, this was already picked up for a movie. That so first of all, huge congratulations! As soon as you guys <laughs> announced that, I reached out to both of you, and I was like, "Congratulations, guys!" I was like, "This is incredible that in a five issue series, before issue two came out, like things were already in motion to make it something kind of you know bigger and and bolder." So when it comes to to that, to the upcoming, I will say, I mean, it will still be a while, but to the the movie project of this comic book, what are some key elements that are vital to translate from the comic book to the movie? Good question. I, um, part, of, part of what I enjoy about having other people, uh, having other producers and other people love it, is that you don't have to answer that you don't have to answer that question. And, uh, yeah. and, 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 Nor do we get to. Yeah, yeah. Oh, fair. <laughs> and, but, but, uh, but, that's, but part of that, too, is like, I'm actually curious to find out. You know what I mean? Like, I, I the way I've sort of always sort of seen the book is the book is, it, it's what I said before. It's me, me confronting my fear that maybe a multiculturalist world is apparent or average. And, and, and that's what that book is about to me. And, but it's also everything I have to say about what I'm scared of and about race in the moment right, right now. Um, I'm curious how much of that is integral to the story of the book. I, obviously, to me, I feel all of it is. Um, I'd be curious to see how much of it works and how much of it doesn't. And I'm actually really grateful. Like, uh, that we don't get the opportunity, nor do we, nor do we have the burden of trying to sort of untangle that web. I mean, one of the, like, that the, the, whoever adapts it, whoever ends up adapting it, the biggest challenge they're going to have if they decide to go down that road is what to do about the race. 
you know, do they want to get as ambitious and as metaphorical as we did with the ghost? And how do they do that in their media? Like I said, so much of the goal when I'm writing a comic, and specifically this comic, is to do things to make uh, people in other media jealous. And comics does body horror better than live action does. Uh, I think if they tried to do the stuff that we do on the page, it would feel kind of laughable and cheap no matter how much money they threw at the problem. So I would be curious, I'd be curious if I'm wrong about that. Um, and I'm curious if I'm right about that, um, what the other solution, what the other solution is, or if it needs it at all. Like these are, these are legitimate questions that I don't know the answer to. And, and, and I am, but what? what? Yeah, I think the closest that you get to that type of body horror is the thing. Yeah. And I just don't think that you could re you could make the thing again. I, I think it some somehow he he created a film that exists in a in a in a dome yeah. that cannot be recreated because A, that prequel that they tried they made Oof. was just a piece of trash. And it was the CGI just did not work. And recently, well, right? Yeah, it came out a it came out a few years ago. Don't watch it. Okay. <laughs> if you don't heard a thing, do not watch it because it ruins the entire inter introduction of the, the film. The what is the key core mystery, mm -hmm. which is what what makes it so compelling. But um, but it either way, it's, but it's also a perfect example of how trying to remake the thing and doing that kind of weird uh, body dysmorphia stuff that they do. Just man, they. It was it was just this spark of genius, you know, and it just nobody's ever done it again. So it would have to have lots of shadow, I think, you know, like you can like it would it would really need to be shrouded in inky blackness, and just little bits and pieces would would have to be illuminated um, of the of the ghosts, you know, in the story to really, I think, make it work really well. Uh, but again, like I said, that's, that's completely up to him. I, it's Sugar 23. I, I've got no worries. <laughs> so... <laughs> right. Very cool. It's funny, I'm looking at, I'm looking at who directed that, that new version of the thing, and I guess he was... I actually don't know if it was director there. It's the only feature that he's directed. Oh, imagine that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know if he got into director... He went straight back into director jail after that, or... or uh, <laughs> like, that's it? Nope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that 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 happens. Fun fact: the writer of that movie would go on to win an Oscar. Of which one? For what? Arrival. Same guy wrote Arrival. Oh, oh man! Wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I I, I I like I do like fun facts. Uh, yeah, yeah. Cool. Well, thank you both uh, so much for for taking the time. Uh, to to talk about this, to talk about all aspects of the book. Um, yeah, I was fortunate enough to get a, an advanced copy of the book, which the day that this episode drops is will be available uh, in your local comic book store. Go support Brick and Mortar. Uh, it is vitally important, but also, I mean, if you want to get it online and, and buy it that way, you can. But support local uh, whenever you can. And where can people find both of you on social media? What is the best way to get the updates about the book? Uh, on my end, definitely the best place to go is on Twitter, real underscore porn sack on Twitter. And at some point, there will be an Instagram account. I have a feeling I will be saying that until I'm 90. 
But uh, <laughs> at some point, there will be a new uh, Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter at Old Man Campbell. It's like Old Man, but without a D. And uh, I do have an Instagram account that I am trying to uh, start using again. Uh, because I know that's where all of the hip kids are. These all the kids are Insta. All, it, it's all, yeah. about the, <laughs> all about the grams. And I think, I, yeah, I think my Instagram is Aaron Campbell Arts. Okay. And I'm also on Facebook. I'm easy to find on Facebook. Uh, just do a search for my name. I think I'm the first Aaron that comes up usually. Really? So, um, I think so, yeah. Usually. Wow, sorry, I, fancy pants. Sheesh. I, I well... <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not the first Aaron that comes up when you Google me. <laughs> gotcha. Uh, and then Aaron, another quick plug for uh, something else that you uh, are working on. You also have a podcast called uh, Adventure Hook. Yeah, my little side hustle, Adventure Hook. It is a podcast about uh, Dungeons and Dragons where we take a basic idea for a story each episode and spend the next hour and a half trying to turn it into a game that you Cool. Perfect. Yeah, I I have been a subscriber since. Te- I, mean, I was I've been a subscriber since it started, but I technically was able to preview. It. You sent me a copy of it a little bit before it oh, yeah, release. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah, we've got we got I think we got four episodes right now up on iTunes. Mm-hmm. Uh, episode five just dropped on our Patreon page. Episode five will be out uh, this Monday, which by the time this episode drops, it'll already be out on iTunes. Nice. So, Very cool. Yeah. Better. You know, we're it's, it's early, we're we're in the early days, so we're we're still greasing the wheels, but we're we're getting a little more comfortable as we go. <laughs> Sounds good. So yeah, I will put all of the links to all of your social media handles and your projects in the show notes below. And also, yeah, you can buy the comic digitally, uh, and also, like I said before, at your local comic book shop. Uh, so thank you. I've been joined by the creators uh, of Infidel. Uh, who did various jobs, but they're both the creators, <laughs> along with the uh, the rest of the huge creative team. So, Pornsack, P. Shutshout, and Aaron Campbell, uh, thank you guys so much. Thank you. Thank you. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby.